This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And for the past number of weeks, talks have been underway at the United Nations in New York for a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. Australia and the United States are among 40 countries to boycott the talks. Indeed, none of those taking part in the negotiations are in possession of nuclear weapons, which has led some to conclude that the talks were doomed to fail from the outset. But these negotiations come at a very crucial time for us. The doomsday clock has officially been shifted to two and a half minutes to midnight, the closest it's been to midnight for quite some time. North Korea continues to posture and advance its nuclear capabilities and the United States looks increasingly unpredictable in terms of its foreign policy initiatives and objectives. So what have these talks, which officially conclude this week, so far amounted to and what prospects are there for this to lead to global nuclear disarmament? Associate Professor Tilman Ruff is an infectious diseases and public health physician at the Nossel Institute for Global Health at the University of Melbourne and a long-time campaigner against nuclear weapons. He's currently in New York for these negotiations and joins us today on the line. Welcome, Tilman. Thanks, Dylan. And so first, I wonder if we can start by you giving us a sense of how these talks have proceeded thus far. Look, it's really been a very productive and exciting process to to witness and be part of. Um, This is the final instalment of these negotiations. There was one week in March and there are three weeks now finishing on Friday, as as you mentioned, which were mandated by last year's General Assembly by a majority of over three to one um, to negotiate a new treaty to ban nuclear weapons and to provide for their elimination. So we're seeing um, really large numbers of governments participating. So far, there have been about 140. Um, there are 192 states in the United Nations. Um, 140 of them are here uh, and negotiating. And as you mentioned, the states that have nuclear weapons or that claim to rely on, on nuclear weapons in their defence policies are not here. So that in fact has made the negotiations go much better than they otherwise would because essentially, with the exception of the Netherlands, which is the only uh, country that is in the room that does still you know, have nuclear weapons on its soil and claim protection from them, um, every other country doesn't. And so the atmosphere is really very positive. It's extremely constructive. Um, we got a revised draft text of the treaty or the crucial elements of it on Friday evening, which, you know, significant progress is being made. We're expecting what the conference president is calling the final draft. Obviously, some tweaks might still be made, but we're expecting that tomorrow, so Monday evening, New York time. Um, And I think we're really on track for this treaty to be adopted um, on Friday. Because it's happening under the rules of the General Assembly, um, it's basically matters of substance, including the adoption of the treaty, can be decided by a two-thirds majority of the, of the states that are in the room and, and able to vote. Um, so there's really no prospect of, of that not you know, being the situation. So I think we can be very confident that a treaty will be concluded on Friday. And, I mean, given that the states that, that have nuclear weapons haven't participated in these talks, what potential effect would a treaty have if it does come into effect? Sure, a very important question. What does what this matter? And, you know, one of the criticisms of the Australian government as to why they don't support this process and have really sought to undermine it at every turn leading here is that they say because the nuclear-armed states are not in the room, 
you know, you can't really do anything meaningful without them. Um, well, that's not quite the case because, you know, there's sort of two bits of, uh, if you like, in broad terms of, of getting rid of nuclear weapons. And I think what this conference is doing very effectively is getting on with the part that the states without the weapons can do. And that's essentially making it clear, codifying in international law that nuclear weapons are a threat to all humanity. Um, nobody should have them. They're beyond the pale. Any way that you might use them, they have unacceptable, inhumane, indiscriminate consequences. We've banned every other kind of weapon of mass destruction, biological and chemical weapons, as well as other indiscriminate weapons like landmines and cluster munitions. Yet the worst of all weapons, nuclear weapons, are not currently explicitly banned by an international treaty. So that's a legal gap that needs to be filled and can be filled by the rest of the world. What the states without the weapons can't do, of course, is get rid of weapons that they don't own. But the pressure on the nuclear armed states will ramp up, I think, enormously um, once this treaty is concluded. And, and I think there's no reason to think it won't be a bit like what's happened with all of those other weapons that I mentioned, where really the first step towards getting rid of them, and the world has really made and is still making very substantial progress on getting rid of biological and chemical weapons, cluster munitions and landmines, the first step in each of those processes was an agreement um, that these weapons had unacceptable effects and shouldn't be in anybody's hands. Um, and that agreement codifying that in law then provides the legal, the moral, the political force and basis for actually getting on with, that motivates getting on with elimination. Um, getting rid of nuclear weapons will obviously be a, you know, a detailed process that involve, will need to involve verified um, steps and it's not possible to negotiate that without the states um, that have the weapons, you know, being actively contributing to that. But, but this treaty can fill the gap uh, that sees nuclear weapons the worst of all weapons and the last weapon of mass destruction not yet prohibited, clearly uh, banned under international law. So that, that will be quite a historic achievement. You know, this has been on the agenda of the United Nations since the beginning. The very first resolution of the UN General Assembly in January 1946 called for the elimination of, of atomic weapons. So it's been a long time coming, but this process is um, is very significant. And it's really the first time that, in fact, in 21 years that there's been nuclear disarmament negotiations in the UN. Um, and it's really the first time that significant negotiations on disarmament have been led by the states without the weapons. Um, so previously we've essentially had the nuclear armed states deciding if and when they might, you know, tweak down and adjust their arsenals a little bit. Um and the states without the weapons have pretty much had to accept whatever crumbs fell from the table. But this is a fundamental shift. This is an assertion of the interests of global humanity that obviously everybody's threatened by nuclear weapons, whoever owns them. Um, and legally, the Non-Proliferation Treaty doesn't distinguish between states with or without the weapons mm. in terms of the, the binding responsibility to disarm and to negotiate for disarmament. Um, so this treaty is, in fact, fulfilling the mandate of the, the, the Non-Proliferation Treaty to negotiate measures towards disarmament. And um, from that point of view, it's really quite historic. And, and I want to pick up on, I guess, some of the, the broader dangers faced by nuclear weapons, which, um, I mean, I mean, a lot of people, and particularly marginalised, 
marginalised people have been impacted negatively by um, nuclear kind of testing and so on throughout uh, world history. But, I mean, you, you outlined the Australian government's reasons or justification for boycotting the talks, but I've read some polling that suggests around about three-quarters of Australians would like the government to participate constructively in this process to ban nuclear weapons. And I know over in New York a, a couple of weeks ago there was a women's march to ban the bomb. Are you noticing that there really is a, a strong citizens' movement to ban nuclear weapons um, either in New York specifically or across the world? Sure. I think this has been a, you know, a long-standing concern of, of people around the world. It's not sort of necessarily front and centre of people's daily concerns, as I think for many of us it really was during the Cold War. I mean, you know, I can well remember, um, you know, buying a bit of land outside Melbourne so we'd have somewhere to go to if, you know, if if nuclear war happened and really worrying every day about, you know, it was a very visceral, palpable kind of real thing in your life. Well, I think there's a sort of misplaced sense of relief and denial that, you know, that that threat has gone away since the end of the Cold War. But as you mentioned, according to most pundits and experts, you know, the doomsday clock, um, you know, those who know the most are saying that the risks of nuclear war are growing and are bigger now than they probably ever were related to more states that have nuclear weapons, more flashpoints, more aggressive sort of posturing and rhetoric and exercises and deployments of nuclear weapons. Um, So it's really real. But if you ask people their concerns in most almost all countries around the world, an overwhelming majority, you know, up to sort of mid-90s percent in some European countries. In Australia, it sort of bobs around the three-quarters to 80 percent of people want their governments to negotiate disarmament. And that's true in the United States as it is in in almost every other country. Um, so, yes, this is clearly something that, that is supported by by the majority of the world's population. And I think um, one of the things that I really hope that this ban treaty will do is to signify, well, there is actually something that we can do about this. And now we've got a, a treaty that is relevant for every country. You know, every country that signs up to this treaty will be obliged to implement national legislation to implement its obligations to to criminalise involvement in nuclear weapons activities for anybody that's subject to its jurisdiction. I think it'll make it um, much more likely that financial institutions, you know, pension funds, superannuation funds, banks, um, even in Australia, the four big banks invest close to $7 billion in companies that make nuclear weapons and mm, they tell wow. us that they're not illegal. But you know, they don't invest in companies that produce cluster munitions and landmines by and large because they're under, illegal under a treaty. So when we have a treaty that bans nuclear weapons, I think a whole lot of financial institutions will be under a lot more pressure um, to divest uh, from investments in such producers. So the hope is that this will have, um, that this will have global ramifications. And, and, and the US has admitted in, in documents to its NATO allies that in encouraging them to stay away from these negotiations, that, look, this treaty would interfere with their nuclear war planning and it would have effects even on countries that don't sign the treaty, um, as we've seen those other treaties have done. You know, once the norm is clearly established in international law, then it becomes much harder. You know, those states become essentially pariah states. Um in a legal sense and increasingly in a political sense. But but civil society pressure is, is crucially important. And, you know, the reason these negotiations are happening is because of civil society pressure. 
Uh, and you know, pretty much every diplomat that you talk to in New York says that this wouldn't uh, be happening without you guys pushing. So don't ever underestimate the power <laughs> of uh, an engaged citizenry to, to change things. Mm, absolutely. And if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Tillman Ruff. He's an Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases and Public Health Physician at the Nossal Institute for Global Health at the University of Melbourne and also Co-President of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. He's a very long-term campaigner against nuclear weapons. We're speaking to Tillman today from New York on a very clear line, which is um, very fortuitous. But um, I was interested to read a, a quote from you, Tillman, that um, there is groundbreaking analysis showing that using less than half a percent of today's nuclear arsenals on cities would cool, darken and dry the surface of the whole planet, decimating agriculture and putting billions in jeopardy from starvation. And I mean, that's pretty alarming to think that a relatively, um, you know, small or, or low-level use of the, the nuclear weapons that we have today could result in um, such catastrophe. Yes, look, you've summarised the evidence very well and it's really, it really is alarming and it should, and it's starting to, you know, it really change the way people think because you, if you understand the effects that nuclear weapons have, then you really, there's no other path that, that is feasible other than their urgent prohibition and elimination. But th this evidence comes from many of the world's best atmospheric scientists, the same people that are, you know, lead authors on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports that underpin our understanding of and of the urgency of, of global warming um, that show that nuclear weapons are extremely efficient at igniting fires simultaneously over a large area if they're targeted on cities. And actually the slightly smaller weapons that we have in today's arsenals, um, even more than the megaton, millions of tonnes of high explosive equivalent weapons that were dominant in the arsenals, you know, some decades ago, are actually more efficient, about 10 to 100 times more efficient at igniting fires. And these fires would coalesce, you know, cities have vast amounts of flammable material, all the textiles, paper, chemicals, oil, gas, petrol, wood, um, you know, that would burn. Um, would loft large amounts of, of very black sooty smoke high into the, the stratosphere where it is essentially beyond the reach of rain. So it just has to settle down gradually. So it persists for, you know, upwards of a couple of decades it would. And and that would cool, darken and dry the surface of the earth sufficiently to, to decimate agriculture and potentially lead to the starvation of, of billions of people. And this, the scenarios that have been um, studied most often and now with different scientific groups using different state-of-the-art climate models essentially showing the same findings, you know, widely published uh, and presented um, really unchallenged in, in the international sort of peer-reviewed scientific literature and in governmental meetings. Nobody has disputed this evidence. Um, so what it means is that even a, a war that used, you know, even half of the arsenals that India and Pakistan currently uh, possess, or if the arsenal of Israel, roughly 100 nuclear weapons were targeted on, on cities of other Middle Eastern nations, or if if there were a, a shooting war in the you know South China Sea, the less escalated to use of China's nuclear weapons. It's not just the 90 plus percent of the world's nuclear weapons that are in the hands of Russia and the US that are a global threat, but you know even a tiny fraction, as you mentioned, less than a half a percent of of the global nuclear arsenal and and, and less than a tenth of a percent of its total explosive yield 
would cause climate change you know, unparalleled in, in human history. And, and I think many people now understand the vulnerability of the global climate to, to human action um, and how important a stable climate is to what sustains us, you know, healthy ecosystems, food, water, um, you know, freedom from extreme events. Um, but not a lot of people yet really have grasped, I think, that the greatest risk of acute climate disruption is actually from nuclear weapons um, and not in warming but in producing, you know, ice age conditions pretty much overnight. Um, so this really makes it plain that, um, you know, the only feasible solution is to get rid of these things. It's not a matter of tweaking down the numbers. The numbers have gone down and that's a great thing. The numbers of nuclear weapons are now, you know, 80% less than they 70,000 odd that there were at, in the height of the Cold War. They're now about 15,000. But because of their extraordinary destructive capacity, that's still more than enough to decimate the planet multiple times over. So... The only safe number is zero uh, because as long as any nation has them, other nations will want to acquire them and the means to produce them, as North Korea has demonstrated, if you have a nuclear reactor, you can make the material for a bomb. That's out of the bag. We can't restrict mm. that anymore. So the only possible solution is, you know, one rule for everybody, uh, no nuclear weapons. And that's actually much easier to implement and verify than, you know, some having them, some not, and trying to keep them out of... Um, the hands that don't have them. And it sounds like so, on, on balance, Tillman, from talking to you, that you're quite optimistic that at the conclusion of talks this week we may achieve a, a treaty to ban nuclear weapons that might lead to substantial change? Indeed. I, I, I'm really convinced. Uh, I, at this stage I see really no prospect for the negotiation not being successful. Um, the major area of disagreement uh, that really resulted in the most prolonged and difficult negotiations was around how states that have had nuclear weapons or have them now might join this treaty and the pathways and the provisions for the verification that, uh, of how they might join the treaty. That's been the most difficult part and that's basically been pretty much sorted. And nothing else has emerged, you know, as a real potential spoiler uh, on getting this done by Friday. Um, and you know, the concern that this has generated um, amongst the nuclear armed states who really don't like this because it will interfere with their uh, their continued possession of, of nuclear weapons and the legitimacy of, you know, nuclear deterrence and the arguments for it uh, will be seriously challenged uh, and they will be legal international pariahs once this treaty is in place. So, so I am very hopeful. This is really the most significant development in nuclear disarmament since the end of the Cold War. Well, it's some um, very important developments that are happening over there at the UN and I uh, very much thank you today, Tillman, for coming on Triple R to um, share your experience with us and, and let us know where we're at with potentially achieving a ban on nuclear weapons. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Dylan. And you might have heard that at the Community Cup the weekend before last, which, uh, which it must be said was another really successful day, a whole lot of money was raised for charity, but a number of streakers were fined by police for disrobing in public. Under Victoria's Summary Offences Act, it is illegal to expose your genitals in a public place, yet many have voiced their concern and outrage, frankly, that people should be penalised for something that's really been part of an event for such a very long time. A number of support groups have emerged online and uh, local 
pub, the Gasometer is staging a gig next week in solidarity with the Streakers. This whole saga raises, I think, a really interesting issue around the way our culture comprehends the naked body. When is nudity offensive and how do we balance the rights of those not to be exposed to nudity as against the rights of those to freely express themselves and bring what they think is a bit of fun to an event? To talk about these issues, we have in the studio Dr Lauren Rosewarn. She's a senior lecturer in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne and a regular commentator on all manner of issues spanning gender and sexuality, the politics of pop culture and so much more. Lauren, great to have you back on Triple R. Good morning, Dylan. So why do we penalise nudity? I think the... Well, you could point to a Victorian argument in the sense that we've still got some hang-ups about uh, purity and we consider the body and genitals particularly to be something for private space. I think that also then leads, even if we separate the sort of Victorian era hang-ups, is that public public space is supposed to be enjoyed by all. And there is an argument that there are certain things that don't belong in a mixed audience, general use space, such as nudity. That's why you rarely see nudity on billboards. That's why you don't see certain things advertised on billboards that might be appropriate at late night television but isn't appropriate or isn't perceived to be appropriate in public space where you've got grandma and little kids and everybody in between using that same space. And it's interesting isn't it because while while we don't have kind of full frontal nudity on on billboards which are um, visible for everyone to see we do tend to have highly suggestive often sexualized images in those public spaces. Yeah and this is something I actually started my academic career looking at uh, in my PhD was looking at how how uh, things that would actually be inappropriate in my office is actually perfectly okay in public space. And there's, you know, the Victorian legislation actually mentions you can't have pinups in your office. Now, we've got a lot of billboards that look very, very much like traditional pinups that you would have in, you know, those sort of cheesecakey Vargas type images. So you're right in the sense that there is um, some quite salacious stuff on billboards. You just don't see genitals. Apparently, genitals is where we draw the line, which is interesting because in a world that, uh, you know, average first-time porn uh, viewing is 10 years old and in a, in a world that... Uh, there's high-level pornography consumptions where cable television is full of genitals, that public sp- that that's still one line that we draw in public space. It's fascinating. And, and, and I don't want to talk, I guess, too specifically about the community cut because I don't know that the specific details and I'm not fully across the details of, of those who were um, allegedly fined for, for, for disrobing in public. But I've heard some arguments that, um, you know, there were kids at the event and, and kids shouldn't be exposed to, to nudity in public. But, um, but, I mean, as you point out, there's... There's sexualized images everywhere and more than any point in history, kids have been susceptible to seeing pornography on, on the internet or, or at home. And a question about that would be, is nudity sexual? And I think that's something that we, we kind of assume based upon mm. genitals are used in a lot of sex acts, not all, but a lot, and therefore perhaps there is something sexual about it. Now, and I think that's where parents' protective instincts come in terms of, oh, my children shouldn't see that. But nudity on its own has a really long history, particularly in art, where it's not only sexual. And I think that's a lot of projection on the part of, of passers-by and those looking at it, thinking, well, they think it's sexual and that's okay. That's one interpretation. It's not the only interpretation. And I think uh, particularly in a culture that we've got a lot of hang-ups about bodies, particularly that I think um, looking at nudity and looking at genitals as only sexual raises a whole lot of concerns, particularly about lack of sexual health education amongst young people. If they've got, let's say, something wrong or does this look right? 
asking that question may feel embarrassing because we only ever think of genitals as sexual as opposed to them well, they're a bodily part just like you know any other that we are happy to display in public and, and we saw those types of moral arguments I guess playing out around the, the safe schools furor and, and those sorts of arguments were also made around Bill Henson's photographs a number of years ago where people were I guess projecting um, you know a, a sexual um, ideal onto those images whereas um, he was saying they were coming from more a place of vulnerability yeah, I think the Bill Henson one raises some concerns because the a lot of the uh, models that he'd used were underage. Mm. So then we've got some issues about can a child consent to have their body portrayed uh, nude or otherwise in art. Uh, for an adult who's chosen to streak, I think, in fact, you could actually reverse it and say children being exposed to the naked body in it, all its forms <laughs> actually potentially desexualizes it because often streaking's not a sexy act at all. You're getting very ordinary people who look like you and I, you know, who are running through and, and letting it all hang out. And it's not the very sanitised uh, model-like bodies that we tend to see in film and TV, which I think also gives a distorted idea about what we look like. Which was very much the tenor of, of the cup um, a couple of weekends ago. I mean, as has happened many years in the past, some people run onto the field, at, you never know when it's going to happen. And having played in the cup, it's kind of like always a surprise. You're waiting for the streaker to happen. And, and when it does, people cheer and they carry on for a few minutes and then it's kind of done and dusted. Yeah, and I think it's also, I mean, I look at a lot of these type of issues as teachable moments. If you're worried about little kids, is it actually a calamity or is it an opportunity to sit down with them and actually say, well, yeah, we tend as a society to cover up. They're not. But look, that's what a body looks like naked as well. And they may have seen mum and dad naked, but they may not have seen others in that type of setting. I don't think nudity on its own is somehow a hugely a hugely moral problem from my perspective. I do, however, respect the argument that public space is for everyone. So I think it's a fine line. Absolutely. And and, and it's about context, isn't it? And I guess, um, you know, the law isn't necessarily good at um, capturing nuance. And yep. we have laws for a reason so that, um, you know, people can feel safe in a public place and for a whole range of other reasons as well. And I mean, police officers were just doing their job a couple of weekends ago, um, as you know, that they should. Um, but the law doesn't always um, account for, for nuance in these types of situations. Yeah, I mean, you know, these guys, aren't, these people aren't going to end up in prison no. <laughs> for this offence. And I think we need to keep it in context. But you're right in the sense we can't also apply double standards about this. Think about an environment where uh, a girls' school, for example, where a streaker, a male streaker decides to run through. We need to keep in mind context. And I think that's where the grey of, of law really comes into it, where that very same gesture would be interpreted as threatening in a different environment. And I think there's not... We have these laws because of the more extreme, you know, running through the church, for example, uh, as opposed to blanket statements. Uh, if you just tuned in, we're speaking with Dr. Lauren Rosewarne, a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne in the School of Social and Political Sciences, and we're talking all about the, the cultural and social phenomenon of nudity. And I mean, on one side, we have laws, um, you know, regulating what people are regulating that people need to wear clothes in public and, and keep the genitals covered in public. But also um, we have anxieties around people being covered up too much in relation to the burqa, for example. And I mean, France has been the most prominent example with with banning certain facial coverings and so on. So this regulation of what, what people can wear, regulating bodies, has a really complex history. It does, and it also has a very gendered history as mm. well. I think there's a higher level of, of scrutiny and regulation of the female body. For example, you would be fine in this... Going out on Nicholson Street without a shirt on, I wouldn't. And these, this double standard about your nipples apparently are okay, <laughs> that they're not offensive or they're not sexual or they're not terrorising, mine are, highlights that we've also got this idea that any display
display of the female body is somehow tempting. And that could be tempting if you're in a in, a, in an Islamic culture where, um, you know, uncovered hair, for example, or uncovered even arms are considered to be somewhat risque versus in a Western culture where we've still got sort of nipples being sexual regardless of what purposes, be that breastfeeding or whatever you're doing, that we have this notion that um, that female, se- female physicality is sexual and temptation uh, follows that and therefore we could lead to social unrest. And if you think about that, that's actually been such an undercurrent for a lot of things where we've got, you know, rape myths about uh, women being able to uh, bring about their own harm based upon what they wear. Those ideas only have traction because we actually sort of believe um, that there is power in, in how women are or aren't covered. And we see this playing out in, in a lot of um, pop cultural media in, in films and television series as well, the very gendered nature of, of nudity and the, the effect that I guess the male gaze has had across those fields. And I know you've written about nudity on, on yep. television and in films and compared how the, the penis has or hasn't been exposed compared to women's genitalia, which is a very different standards that we apply. Yeah, I mean, if you look at a show, a popular show like Game of Thrones, for example, which has been talked a lot about in the context of nudity, female nudity is used as background noise. It's there always. You know, there'll be a scene where it'll focus on the action of a couple of characters unconnected to the females who are naked, yet they're in the background messing about potentially sexually, otherwise just walking around. When penises are shown in Game of Thrones, it's very much making a point. It's a point about vulnerability. It's a point potentially about death or emasculation as opposed to window dressing. And I think that you could actually make that blanket statement across most film and TV. There are some exceptions, of course, but most film and TV uses female nudity as something we're all supposed to find attractive. If we're going to see male nudity, it's either going to be extremely sort of cutting edge, maybe like Shame, the film with Michael Fassbender, or it's going to be to show a man in, a, in an emasculated or vulnerable position. And that's, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's the history of who's making film and television, uh, the assumption about what the audience wants to look at, you know, talk to men or women and they both say, we don't want to look at penises, but we love, all of us are supposed to love looking at breasts. And I think there's lots of reasons as to why we have that double standard, but I think it feeds into, you know, what kind of things we um, observe in, in public space in terms of what nudity is and isn't tolerable. Absolutely and I know a lot of people have been um, talking about these sorts of issues in the wake of the um, streaker gate as it's been called at the Community Cup a couple of weeks ago or streaks of your town. When it, when it, that's a, I like that one but when it gets <laughs> gate onto it we know the gate suffix mean it's serious and we have to tackle it seriously. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll wait and see what happens in that space but it's been um, a lot of fun and very enlightening. We are officially in NADOC week and this year's theme to mark the occasion is Our Languages Matter. Right across the nation there are set to be a whole lot of celebrations to emphasise the unique role that Indigenous languages play in cultural identity and history. Since colonisation, many Aboriginal languages across Australia have been lost or threatened, but there are people and organisations who are working very hard to turn things around. One of those is the Victorian Aboriginal Corporation for Languages. For over two decades, they've run special projects and workshops in an effort to strengthen and consolidate traditional languages right across the state. To talk more about this, I spoke yesterday to the organisation's Executive Officer, Paul Patton. So, Paul, thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R. And uh, you have just now, I understand, stepped out of a, one of your community language workshops. I wonder if you can start by giving us a bit of a sense of uh, what happened down there today and how these workshops typically run. Sure. Uh, no, thanks. Um, Dylan, uh, yeah, we've been running a workshop for the last two days um, here in Detroit, just up the road from our office. 
um, bringing together uh, language uh, individuals and, and uh, communities um, to share their experiences and stories around their la- own language journeys and really to be able to design to be able to um, for people to to, to share those stories it's, the, the event's called Dumba Jetting which which is a, a local word which means talking together and, and and that's what it's really about people often uh, when they're doing language work they might be um, doing going it alone or just uh, in their community the one the only one person is doing it and the idea is that, um, that they can come together and they can they can talk about what they're doing and and if there if there are any challenges then you know they can they can bounce ideas off each other and and and, and really just sort of connect with it with it, with a, a much broader community um, around Victoria that uh, are doing similar work and um, it's a really it's a really good way to um, sort of I guess reduce that that feeling of you know being isolated and um, because it is quite, you know, intensive work, and so, but you know, having said that, some some communities have, have gone beyond that, and they're they're running um, quite extensive programs in their communities and schools, so um, they can teach a lot to the others who who are still just starting their journey. So it's it's a really good positive uh, environment that uh, that uh, is just all about all about language, all about. Um, you know, positive uh, experiences and, and, and knowledge. And I understand in, in Victoria there are around about 38 different distinct Aboriginal language groups and they're kind of grouped into 11 language families, as I understand it. Can you give us a bit of a sense of, of, of that dynamic and I guess how many similarities some of those languages share? Yeah, well, that's right. Um, yeah, the 11 language families... Um, you, 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 your listeners may have heard of the Kulin Nation around around Melbourne, and the Kulin Nation are a group of five language groups, um, which which make up that 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 nation, the Kulin Nation, and uh, and how they how they're uh, I guess put you know, put together, but grouped as, as a nation is through their their commonality in their language. So um, their languages are, are quite similar, like. Uh, um, up, upwards of ninety percent uh, similar in, in their in their vocabulary. So as a, as a as a I guess a, um, looking at through a linguistic lens, um, we we say that if uh, if their language is very similar, upwards of uh, upwards of seventy percent, um, then they're part of a, a language family. So we have language eleven, like you said, eleven language families around the state, and they're. Um, they're also, you know, in the southwest in the Gunditjmara, um, up in the northwest, is, which is commonly known as the Western Kulin, and there are other some small discrete groups as well, um, and it really, really plays a, an important role in language reliability because when we do find gaps in our records, um, because um, I guess going back. We have a lot of uh, historical records that are very important to us to be able to revive language, but they're not fully complete in the sense that you know you think about so many how many words we have in English, and there, there aren't just that many words that you can translate directly across. But um, when you look at uh, those records, sometimes you can look. Uh, it's, it's very it's very easy to look just at your language uh, and look for records that identify your language. But once you realise that you're part of a language family, you can sort of branch out a little bit and look to those those neighbouring languages to support 
those gaps in your own uh, language records. Mm, and I mean, that word revival is a really interesting one because typically if people learn a language other than English at school, which tend to be European or, or maybe Asian languages, we speak of language education or language learning. But in this case, as mm. you alluded to, people are kind of, I guess, needing to rediscover and and, uh, you know, really intensely research their ancestral language to come to some kind of codified method of, of, of teaching them. That must be a really difficult and, and lengthy and, and also very collaborative process, I imagine. Yeah, it is, it is, a, it is a lot of work. And as I mentioned, the records uh, are quite diverse. Uh, over over the, the last, you know, 200-odd years, um, our languages have been recorded by linguists and, and historians and 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 um, missionaries and people in the church and, and things like that. So w- what that creates today is a whole lot of different records um, that need analysis by today's community to actually um, both deconstruct and reconstruct um, the languages looking at all those records. So we, we provide um, systems of, of support to those communities through, through linguistics and, and education to be able to analyse those materials and come up with something that works for today's community rather than um, taking taking all that's written as, as gospel and, and really um, reconnecting and, and creating a new sense of ownership over the language, which can then be sort of taken on and, and, and taught to others. And you work a lot with, with different Aboriginal communities around Victoria to, to reclaim and, and revive their language. And I guess intrinsically tied to that is an identity, a cultural identity that, that lives on in the language. But at uh, Victorian Aboriginal Corporation for Languages, do you have much contact at all from, from non-Aboriginal people wanting to learn more about Victorian Aboriginal languages? And how do you navigate that when... The process of, yep. I guess, building up and consolidating languages is still very much a, an evolving process. Yeah, absolutely. We we do get a, a, a very large amount of inquiries and, and um, uh, people wanting to actually know how they can learn more about the language, or are there any language uh, lessons so that they can they can you know speak the language. Um, of the land, and um, it's it, for, for us. We, we it's about teaching about those processes of community reclamation, and that communities are still in, in that process of reclaiming the language, and they're, they're not at a point where uh, they feel comfortable as as still learners of the language to be to be teachers of the language. So they're they're still on on that journey from going back as a, as a, um, a non-language speaker, it's really like going back to being a child and learning your language from, from scratch. So um, it, it, you know, it's, it's not at a point at, um, yet where um, the community is, is fluent. So it is, it is a, a long-term process. And um, so what we do is we, we teach people uh, about that process and, and what what the protocols are around engaging with community and, and the learning of language. So mm. it will, I think, it will come in come in time. But um, you know, it, it it is about that process. Mm. And I understand there have been a number of successful programs at schools, such as Thornbury Primary School, which is just down the road from Triple R, to teach mm. uh, local languages to to school children. Yeah, well, that's right. There are, there are about seven language programs around. Um, around Victoria at the moment, and you know, teaching in school, Formby won't be one of those 
of uh, pilot schools um, that have that have continued, and they actually started out as a, as a pilot, uh, and they actually um, replaced the the LOC program. So um, with the with the Wurundjeri language, the Wurundjeri language, um, and you know, it's it's really teaching language in a much broader context. It's not just teaching the language; it's teaching me about the songs and the stories and the connection to the land uh, and the people and the history. It, it's it's you know, you don't teach language in isolation. So um, yeah, it's it's a process that. Um, even even teaching in schools and it's, and it's taught to all all the children, so it's it's really sort of an embracing, an inclusive environment. But you know the teachers that are are teaching that um, aren't aren't fluent speakers. They're they're still learning the language themselves, and they actually um, might only be um, a couple of weeks ahead of the learning that's actually in, happening in the classroom. Um, but you know it, it, that's what it's all about. It's about learning together and and uh, sort of going through that process again. If you're just tuned in, we're speaking with Paul Patton. He's the Executive Officer at the Victorian Aboriginal Corporation for Languages and we're talking about a whole range of things in relation to the work they do to, to revive and reclaim Victorian Aboriginal languages for particular communities. And over the time that you've been at VACL and the work that you've done, Paul, what have you seen mm. as the, the effect of these language revival projects on particular communities over that time? Uh Particularly, I think, you know, I've seen uh, communities coming together in, in a really uh, positive uh, framework and context around around language. It, it is something that um, people can, can engage with. Uh, sometimes there is sort of a, a bit of trepidation about it, but once they see that it's, it's not, not uh, you know, intimidating or anything like that, then people uh, really sort of fully engage and, and really want to, uh, you know, learn more and more and, and um, through that they're reconnecting with with the songs and the stories that uh, that have been passed down through generations, uh, learning about the land and the season, um, and reintroducing um, cultural ceremonies that have emerged from doing the language research and and, um, and, and relearning the songs and all those sorts of things. So there's a really sort of sense of um, uh, spiritual awakening through through um, through learning the language because. Uh, yeah, it's such a such an old um, language that's that's um, lived on this land for for such a long time, and and that really has a, a positive effect for people who who sometimes you know know that they're Aboriginal, uh, um, but they don't have a lot of that that knowledge that hasn't been um, passed on, and that uh, this really provides an opportunity for them to to reconnect at a, at a much more deeper level, I think. And the work you do is, I guess, quite intensely focused on uh, Victorian Aboriginal communities, but you've also appeared at the UN uh, last year for a Global Indigenous Languages uh, discussion and summit. And I wonder from your experience there and conversations you've had and and knowledge of other countries, how Australia or even Victoria kind of stacks up in in the emphasis that we place on furthering understanding and and revival of Aboriginal languages compared to some other countries. Yeah, I think you know language revival is, is as I've as I've come to learn through um, through my travels, and particularly at the UN and and some other other trips as well. That language revival is a, a global sort of movement, and that uh, communities all, all around the world are um, uh, embarking on on similar journeys of, of language revival and maintenance. Um, and I think you know Australia 
is doing a, a good job in that it provides you know funding across across the country to uh, centres such as ours to support communities to um, to undertake those those activities like like um, making dictionaries and, and learning resources and all those types of things that are really going to sort of uh, infiltrate into into the community and, and create environments of learning. It, um, so. Now, compared to other countries, as I, I've learnt, as I learnt at that UN meeting, was that um, Australia is probably one of the few countries that actually provide a have a have a committed um, funding uh, um, a lot of money, a bucket of money that goes to that goes to support the, those specific activities and um, and uh, you know there, there are other countries there where people are just doing it off their own bat. So. Uh, I think we're very lucky. Um, there is, I think, there's still more work to do. There's, you know, that money is is, is coming from the Commonwealth, and you know, there's there's other opportunities through uh, through state systems that we can actually um, build and and expand the level of uh, activities uh, and the level of interest that is really growing um, beyond the capacity of the funding that we get now. Mm. And, uh, I mean, we are in NAIDOC week and the official theme for this year is mm. our languages matter. And, I mean, I'm sure NAIDOC week's a busy time for you at the best of times, but That's is there any, any yeah. uh, particular kind of emphasis or, or extra workload on you this time around? Oh, yeah, I guess, you know, yeah, at, um, NAIDOC week, having that having that focus has, has brought uh, a spotlight onto languages and, uh, you know, people are, uh, are paying attention and, and, and looking at what... Uh, what uh, activities are, are occurring? Uh, what services that are, are available and resources that are available? Uh, and they're really sort of interested. And hopefully that will sort of uh, kick off a, a, you know, a new a new conversation, particularly around those activities and and how uh, organisations and departments that that are having NADOC activities in the schools can can uh, engage more with languages and. Um, the benefits that, that can bring. So, I mean, it is it is going to be a big workload uh, over NADOC week, but uh, I think we'll we'll sort of reap the benefits in the long term. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's. Um it can only be a positive thing. And before I let you go, Paul, um, you do have an event coming up this Monday at Melbourne Museum. Mm. I understand. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, I guess uh, as part of as part of NADOC week, we really wanted to. Um, Share our successes as um, as communities uh, undertake language revival and really sort of um, present those those successes to 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 an event. Um, there's lots of NADOC Week events, uh, and we wanted to be able to um, uh, highlight and and give voice to to uh, to our language workers who who are you know slogging away at it and 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 really producing good good outcomes and um, be able to. Uh, we're going to have uh, some storytelling, and we're going to have um, we're going to have some songs um, performed by the Judy Judy Dance Group. Um, so yeah, it's just a real mix of uh, give uh, of activities and and displays to be able to show people really you know the achievements of, of language and um, and the successes and celebrate those and show that you know, to to our community that language languages do matter. 
Absolutely, and it's, uh, I mean, you're doing so much uh, incredible and, and, <laughs> and by the sounds of it, exhausting work with um, so many communities around Victoria to help um, reclaim and, and revive their languages. Really appreciate you taking the time to, to share uh, what you've been up to today and I uh, really hope to stay in touch and have you back on the program sometime down the line to um, give us a bit of an update. Sure, great. Thanks very much, Dylan. That's uh, Paul Patton. He's the Executive Officer at the Victorian Aboriginal Corporation for Languages. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. 